So just when you thought the political campaign was over, <laughs> we get what Yogi Berra called deja vu all over again, right? And my, my, my feeling about it is a little bit, the two sides are a little bit like a bad marriage, you know, um, that's where the parents are fighting and one says, if, if they won't let go, then I'm not going to let go either. And if they don't let go, then I'm going to... And the American people are kind of like the kids at the door listening <laughs> to see what's going to happen between the uh, parents. Um, waiting for some adult moment to happen. (laughs) I've just come back from a retreat in the desert in Yucca Valley with uh, Wes Nisker, Stan Groff, Christine Groff, a number of others. And on election night, Wes, who is um, also known as Scoop on the radio, did a whole talk about the election touting the campaign that was started by Wavy Gravy of nobody for president. And he presented nobody to the group and said, "Um, you really have to listen to this because nobody will lower your taxes, right? And nobody really listens. And nobody knows the trouble you've seen as well. And nobody will bring you world peace, right? And nobody will bring the Republicans and Democrats together. Nobody has the high, your highest interest at heart. Mm-hmm. And nobody is enlightened. What a great candidate, huh? And nobody loves you. That's right. <laughs> So the next morning, Wes came in to see me after all this stuff started, and he said, I called my home message machine, and there was a message from Wavy Gravy on my tape, kind of screaming into my tape machine, we did it, nobody won. (laughs) Come to this. So this is from the Tales of the Desert Fathers, the Christian hermits who lived in the second century in the deserts of Egypt in the Middle East. There were two old men who had lived together for many years in the desert, and they never quarreled. Now one of them said, let us try to quarrel once, just like other people do. And the other replied, I don't know how a quarrel happens. And the first said, look, I put this brick between us and I say, this is mine, and you say, no, it's mine, and after that a quarrel begins. So they placed a brick between them, and one of them said, this is mine, and the other said, no, it's mine, and he replied, indeed, it's all yours, so take it with you as you like, and they were unable to fight with each other and gave up the struggle. So apparently there are other ways for us as human beings. And tonight being middle of November and headed into what we call the holiday season for some reason, um, (laughs) 
Wouldn't it be great if it really was a holiday from busyness and buying and selling and all of that? Mm. Anyway, I thought to begin a series of four or five talks for the weeks I'm here in this month and next month um, on the divine abodes, on the Buddhist teachings of the awakened heart. Um, loving-kindness, joy, equanimity, forgiveness, compassion. Because the teachings that um, are offered from this lineage of the elders, from the Buddhist tradition, and that we've worked with those who've come here on a more regular basis, really speak about a possibility for us as human beings, a shift of identity from the entanglement with greed and fear and delusion and anger to the capacity of the heart for wisdom, for openness, generosity, and love. And these qualities in Buddhist psychology are taught to be our true nature. It's who we really are when we awaken, when we let go, when we free ourselves from entanglement that it is actually possible for each of us to awaken and fulfill this great heart of a Buddha, our own Buddha nature. Now it's said on the night of his enlightenment, as the story is told, that after his awakening, the Buddha sat with a tremendous sense of joy and freedom and peace of heart. And then looked about the world with the eye of wisdom to see far and near beings and began to see that everywhere he looked, beings wanted happiness and wanted to avoid suffering. But that's the nature of life. But that often they were doing the very things that led them into further unhappiness rather than that which led them to freedom to joy and to peace. And so he began to think, how can I teach this? What can I say to others that will bring them this great freedom that I know is possible for us? And so he began to teach that the freedom that we human beings can experience is not in control of the circumstances of our life, at least not very much, the big things don't seem to be much in our control. I think all of us have learned or noticed that. Even a lot of the little things aren't. A few, but not many. And so what was central to his awakening, to his liberation, was to see that instead of changing the circumstances of the world to avoid pain and gain pleasure and have things that we want last, even though nothing lasts, that instead it was possible to love the world, to rest in the world, to open our eyes and our heart of compassion to the world as it is and find peace. And part of the teaching of that, he taught, was the natural quality of love or loving kindness that comes into the heart that isn't grasping and wrestling with the world, trying to make it some other way than it is. 
He said, and for a being who sees the world in this way, such thoughts and intentions come into their heart. For those who are skilled and peaceful, the thoughts and intentions come, may all beings be happy. Just as I wish to be happy, may every other being I encounter be happy. May they live in safety and joy. All living beings, whether weak or strong, tall, stout, average or short, seen and unseen, near or distant, born or yet to be born, may they all be happy. Let no one deceive another or despise any being. Let none by anger or fear wish to harm another. And as a mother watches over her child, willing to risk her own life to protect her only child, so with a boundless heart, should we too learn to cherish each being, suffusing the whole of the world in every direction, unobstructed with loving kindness. The words of the Buddha. Now the quality of loving kindness, one of the natural states of the awakened heart, is also sometimes translated as friendliness. Because sometimes love seems like a little bit daunting to love all of experience, all of beings, all of creation. But another simple translation, this one of friendliness, begins to invite us to see there is a natural communion, community, neighborliness that comes. When we step out of the small sense of self, what's called the body of fear, or what Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, the Lama, Tibetan Lama, called the bureaucracy of ego. He said to step out of that for a moment, me and how it's supposed to be, and see that really we're all in it together, Republicans, Democrats, Libertarians, etc. We are. And of course, it's one thing to do loving-kindness meditation, which we'll do before the evening is over, for beings in all directions, far and near. More difficult, of course, is to love the beings that are closest to us, the kind of personal. I mean, I have often told the story of going in at the end of a meditation retreat, the morning when I promised I was supposed to teach loving-kindness meditation, some many years ago, and I had had a very difficult quarrel with my girlfriend of the time because um, she'd promised to meet me somewhere and anyway it didn't work out and I was really angry with her and she with me and I sat down and you know it's time for loving kindness and <sighs> breathe and forgive and then I'm you know and all this nice kind of meditative voice saying now think of someone you love a lot and send your loving kindness to them teaching it and then I get quiet and I think I'm going to call her back god damn it I'm going to tell her that's unfair and I'm so pissed and now think of somebody else you love a lot and send them you know and there is my mind and of course you know, I meditated for a while, so I knew the mind has no pride. It'll do anything, right? <laughs> so I just kind of watched it go back and forth, anger and resentment and forgiveness and loving kindness and anger and resentment and so forth. 
by the end it was a little bit better. I called her back. We kind of figured things out. Um, the idea of friendliness is really toward everything, including to our own pain and our own difficulties and our own fears. There's a big piece of love that's simply self-acceptance. A lot of spiritual life for us in the West is learning self-acceptance. I remember this cartoon from Jules Pfeiffer where there is a man standing in the corner, kind of backed in the corner with his arms folded, and a woman with her arms outstretched in front of him, kind of on her knees, saying, but I love you. And he's looking back and he says, don't you threaten me, right? (laughs) We have so much judgment of our own minds and our own lives and those of others. And yet in the end, um, the real awakening for us as human beings on this earth can only come coupled with love. Silence, liberation of the heart, wisdom doesn't come without love. They have to be together. I rem- and it doesn't come from will or knowledge. It really comes from the presence of the heart. I remember this wonderful wise woman, Jungian analyst and the founder of sand play therapy, Dora Kalf, that I, my wife and I both studied with in Switzerland. I remember going to see her. She had this room in this ancient house from the 15th century, this room filled with 10,000 little figures that you could make a scene in the sandbox with. She was kind of the archetypal old wise woman. And I went in and she had this little sandbox and I kind of knew how to do this, but I wanted to see what she would say. And I said, so what should I do? And she looked at me with this great twinkle and she said, anything you like. And it, it made such a space that she called a free and protected space that you could do whatever you needed to do. She told a story later when we were talking about some young very angry teenage, preteen boy, 11 or 12 years old, who came in and he was going to make a sand play. And he said, can I have a hammer? And she said, certainly. He said, she said, what for? He said, I want to destroy some things. So she got him a hammer and he took figures off the shelf and he just smashed them with the hammer. She said, he did quite a few figures that way. <laughs> then when he was finished with that, he buried some in the sand. And then gradually over the weeks, he began to unbury the things that were buried. Do you understand? We went to the zoo, my daughter's class, some years ago, because a member of the Spirit Rock community um, is also the um, keeper or tender of the primates at the San Francisco Zoo. And so she invited my daughter's class and I to come and visit her beloved chimps and gorillas. So we went to the zoo, we met the chimps, the kids got to shake hands with the chimps, it was very cool. She called them out by name and they all came, we fed them and whatever. And then it was time to go see the gorillas and she said, well, do you know how to approach a gorilla? That sounds like some kind of joke for elementary school, doesn't it, right? (laughs) Carefully or whatever, you know the answer. She said, no, no, she said, you really have to know because these beings They know when you're respectful or not, and it's the only way to engage them. 
you know, and here's the zoo and kids going by on skateboards and adults in strollers and, you know, pushing strollers and kids and, and all kinds of people. And the, the gorillas are kind of in their area, not paying attention to anybody. And she said, okay, kids, if you want to meet the gorillas, especially the big silverback that was kind of the dominant male in the group and the, the elder of it, and if he pays attention to you, the other gorillas will too. And they follow his lead. So she said, this is what you need to do. First, you don't approach big. You kind of hunker down a little bit. Some of the kids actually kind of sidled up, like backed up toward where the gorillas were. She said, and then when you get close, she said, you don't look at the gorillas with your eyes wide open. That's considered kind of impolite. And so you keep your eyes down a little bit. And then when you're ready to make contact, you simply clear your throat, <clears throat> which is a gorilla language for, um, excuse me. So <laughs> these little kids, this group, you know, eight, eight-year-old, nine-year-old, they all went up kind of slowly, and they, there were all these gorillas in there, all the people going by. And then they looked over, but not too wide, and they went, <clears throat> and the silverback turned around and looked at them and said, you, you know, as if to say, is someone want something from me, and walked over, and the other gorillas, it was fantastic. They were so excited. They'd learned a few words of gorilla. <laughs> Everybody loves respect. Your plants, your garden, your children, your parents. Your employers, your employees. Loving kindness practice is really about that quality of respect. Respect for one another and respect for the difficulty that we share as human beings. When the Buddha sat and his eyes and heart opened to the world, he began by telling the truth that there is suffering in this world as well as beauty and joy. There's unspeakable beauty and unspeakable suffering, both. And it is true. And then he said, hatred will never end by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. This is the way things are on this earth. He looked with compassion and began to teach everybody he met, this is the way to live where the heart can be at peace. My teacher, Mahagosananda, who walked as the Gandhi of Cambodia through the warring parts of Cambodia doing peace marches, when he came to America, he visited me at one point, and he said, you know, it's a terrible thing. I was just at a Cambodian temple in California, and they're fighting there too. The factions who came to the U.S. from the Khmer Rouge and from the free Cambodians, they're fighting for the control of the temple. He said, so it's not just in our country, but it's in our hearts. And I had to go there and spend some days with him and say, this is not the way that will bring you happiness. It didn't work in Cambodia, and it's not going to work here. And he said, I just sat there in the midst of it all and listened and listened and listened and finally said, Hatred never ceases by hatred. This is the ancient and eternal law. If we practice loving-kindness, and it is a practice, then that which is natural to us grows to be our way. And it grows, I think, most, that capacity grows most through our difficulties. 
Martin Luther King, Jr. Never succumb to the temptation of becoming bitter. If you succumb to the temptation of using violence in the struggle, unborn generations will be the recipients of a long and desolate night of that bitterness. As you press for justice, be sure to move with dignity and discipline using only the power of love. Send that down to Florida. (laughs) We'll get there. It's okay. Peter Matheson. Growing up, the child's clear eye is gradually clouded over by ideas and opinions, preconceptions and abstractions, all taught to him. Simple free being becomes encrusted with the burdensome armor of the ego. Not until years later does an instinct come that a vital sense of mystery has been withdrawn. The sun glints through the pines, the heart is pierced in a moment of beauty and strange pain like the memory of paradise, and after that day we become seekers, seekers of love. In the end of our life, the questions are really simple ones. When you sit with someone who is dying in a conscious way, when we have that privilege, what we ask are so simple. Did I love well? Did I live this life in a full and honorable way? We can each sense this in ourself, the possibility, the longing to live from the place of our heart, from our wisdom. And in the teachings of the Buddha, this is seen as the task to to embody the best of our nature. The truth is, and we all know it, that there is tremendous sorrow on this earth that's caused by us as a species. And there's lots of other suffering that's natural disasters and the rest. But we're now at the point as a collective where most of the worst problems on the earth are human-caused. The warfare, the injustice, the racism, the grain elevators full of food some places and the hungry children others, the continuing sale of weapons in Africa and Asia all around, including our own streets. The forces of greed, the forces of hatred and delusion. And yet underneath all of those, there is another way. It says in the Bhagavad Gita, if you want to see the brave, look to those who can return love for hatred. If you want to see the heroic, Look to those who can forgive. To see with the eyes or the heart of a Buddha is given to each of us as a possibility. I remember seeing this beautiful Bodhi tree in uh, Sri Lanka when I was traveling there, which they have in the town square sometimes, these beautiful trees that are taken from the shoots of the Bodhi tree in Bodhgaya, or so it's said, where the Buddha sat on this night of enlightenment. And there was a 
a kind of hand-engraved sign by the tree, the words of the Buddha that said, See how the tree shelters and shades even the woodsman whose axe would cut it down. This again from the teachings on loving-kindness. So when we're invited to come and sit and meditate, to take this seat halfway between heaven and earth, the invitation isn't just to get a little quiet or a little peaceful, although that's fine, or to relax the tensions of our body to pay attention. But it is to come back to that center of our being that has the capacity to bear the sorrows of the world and to love anyway, to really live from that place. And that's what makes it difficult and demanding and worthwhile. I think very often when I teach on loving kindness and compassion of the, the place, I speak about it, that to me in some way signifies this quality most visibly in our culture, which is the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. And I've talked about it over a lot of years. It seems in some ways to get more far away as a war. Um, but not as a place if you go back there as I have because it's a temple. And the reason it's a temple is because both grief and tears on one side and love and care are allowed to be expressed in an honest and open way in public. It's one of the few places where you see grown men weep in America. If I could, I would lead each person in hand, every mother and father, past this black stone wall and ask them to read every name and imagine each life that was cut short like my own child was. No. Just the notes and letters that are left there. This note in somebody's handwriting, if I can find it, that looks like the handwriting of a young girl What happened to that? Hmm. Well, it's gone. Like all these things. Read another one. Your name is on a black wall in D.C., but I'm sorry to say it's a little below ground, kind of how the enemy was. You overlook a nice green, a place like where we used to play football back home. A lot of people walk by all day. You can tell which are the vets. We're not the ones who ask about the size of this monument or the stone that was used. We just stand and look and weep, not caring who sees us cry, just like no one cared when so many of us died. Just notes, dearest Eddie Lynn, I love you and I miss you. I wish you were here with me. Dearest Kathy, I'm taking care of. Oh, dearest Kathy, dearest, let's see if I can find it. Oh, dearest Jim, Kathy's taking care of your children now. I'm helping her when I can. We all remember you, and we just came down here to visit you 
so you know we haven't forgotten. It just goes on and on in an honorable way. The practice of loving-kindness meditation was taught by the Buddha first when some monks and nuns went into the deep forest and heard the sounds of wild animals sitting in caves and thought they heard ghosts and they ran back and they said, please give us a protection in this difficult world. The Buddha said, I will give you the great protection, the protection of a loving heart. He began to teach the systematic loving-kindness meditation. But before he did, he said, let me tell you why it is a protection. Because wherever you go with a loving heart, beings will sense this. Ram Das puts it this way. He says, to me, that's the power of a Gandhi or a Buddha, just one person who isn't vulnerable. Don't underestimate the power of the human heart. When I look at the human heart, that link, that doorway, I see an institution that makes the Pentagon look like children's toys. We all know the stories of mothers who pick up cars off their children when they've rolled over them. Amazing things that are done from the spirit of loving-kindness. In the West, we tend to think of power as power over others. You know, and that the real power is somebody who's not afraid to kill somebody else. But there's only one other power that can match that, and that's the power of the loving heart. I've been reading this book by Rupert Sheldrake, who's a friend whose work I like a lot, called Dogs That Know When Their Owners Are Coming Home. And it's a whole series. He's a biologist and scientist talking about the extraordinary powers of animals. Um, In one chapter, beside dogs, all these dogs, and he does these experiments with video cameras where um, he'll put a video camera in the room where the dog is, by the door and so forth, and then a video camera with a time tape on it where the person who is the dog's owner or the dog's person is. And then by random numbers or the throw of the dice, at some point he will call that person and say, all right, put your jacket on and start to prepare yourself to go home some miles away. And the minute he calls that person and says, start to prepare yourself to go home, then the other video camera on the dog sees the dog perk its head up, walk over the door, wag its tail, and sit down and wait for that person. Repeatedly, you know, reliable experiments. But anyway, he's also interested in what it is that allows these animals to find their owners. And so he's collected thousands and thousands of stories. Um, uh, For example, um, oh, here's a story of a dog that prevented suicide. This woman who was, um, had ended a terrible divorce and loss of children. And she, her dog and cats were sleeping contentedly in the front of the fire. And she went in the kitchen and got water and took out all the pills that she'd been saving up to um, take to end her life. And her beloved spaniel jumped up from the fire, ran in front of her, jumped onto the table, knocking over the water, 
pulled his lips back, snarled so much that she didn't go near the pill and had to sit back down. Um, and then he came up to her and started frantically licking my face, his whole body wagging, because I didn't do it. And I realized after that I couldn't do it. Or the stories of journeys of animals. A sheepdog who was abandoned by car thieves after the Land Rover was stolen and driven over 100 kilometers from his home into an area of England where he had never been, dumped there. The car was found, and the owner, Mr. Um, Balderstone, who was a shepherd, said, Oh, he's a sheepdog. He'll be fine. All he did was call a number of the farmers on the way back and say, Keep your eye out for my dog. And sure enough, 100 kilometers and five days later, the dog appeared wagging its tail by the door. Never been that place before. Or even birds, okay? There was a magpie adopted by the children of the Boatsier family in Dracy near Paris after it fell out of its nest as a baby. They raised it for several years and then one holiday they took it to stay with them in their grandparents' home near Bordeaux in southern France where the bird escaped. The children are terribly upset and at the end of the holiday, they had to return home without her. Soon afterward, they saw her in the tree nearby the house. They called to her. She flew in the window and back into her cage 300 miles away. (laughs) Even more spectacular was the pigeon that belonged to Ken Clark of Bakersfield, California. He gave the bird to some cousins to take care of. They were visiting from Connecticut. He provided a cage and feed for them to carry it in, and off they went. One month later, the bird was back. Its tail feathers were mostly mostly gone. It was dirty and a real mess. His cousins had taken the bird 3,000 miles away, but it escaped when they were trying to transfer it to a bigger cage, and it flew back home. So if birds and dogs can do it, don't you think (laughs) that we can too? It's actually contagious. Loving kindness, we catch it from one another. It's such an amazing power, and I remember my teacher, Deepama, this woman in Calcutta, who used to give us these long, wonderful hugs and do her loving-kindness meditation as she did, and she would kind of pat us all over and hug us, especially when we were young teachers and really desperately needed it because we didn't know what we were doing at all. We'd go to her and say, we don't want to do what, know what we're doing, and she said, it's okay, and she'd pat us and say, there, there, it'll be all right, now you go and teach some more, you know. <laughs> And she would do it in such an amazing way that for days afterward, we'd all just be smiling like this with so much love. Now, I don't want to be sentimental about it. It's easy to read these dog stories and say, you know, it's all... It's actually very, very difficult to love. But it also has such a capacity to turn the situation of our lives around. Sylvie Borstein tells this story. She was on a retreat in New York City and teaching loving-kindness meditation. And one of the students there who'd been practicing said that he had been mugged at gunpoint recently in the city. And a man came up to him, obviously high on some kind of drug, strung out this guy, kind of dirty blonde hair and you know, old kind of rumpled army jacket and on a back street with a gun and said, 
give me everything. So he said he took out his wallet and he gave all the money in the credit cards. He said, no, no, give me more. And he gave him his watch and whatever he could. And the guy was kind of shaking the gun and looking at him and saying, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. He said, no, 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 wait. And he took finding more things. Here, take this too. Here, take that. I'm going to shoot you. I'm going to kill you. And finally, the, the man who was being mugged looked at the guy holding the gun who's saying, I'm going to shoot you, I'm going to kill you. And he said, you don't have to kill me. You don't have to shoot me. You did really good. You got $700. You got credit cards. You got a good watch. They're going to be so proud of you where you go. You did really good. You don't have to shoot me. And the guy looked at me and he said, I did good. I did good. <laughs> you don't have to shoot me. You did really good. Oh, it's okay. Thank you. You know? And he went back. A true story. I mean, we're all just waiting for somebody to look at us and say, it's okay, you did good. You really did okay. Because it is hard for all of us. It's the truth, you know. And nobody gets out of that. If you know what it means to be out in the middle of an ocean by yourself in the dark, scared, then it gives you a feel for what every other human being is going through. I row an actual ocean. Other people have just as many obstacles go through, for the ocean is all around us, and they are rowing as best as they can. This is from Toni Murden, the first woman to row, row solo across the Atlantic Ocean. You can imagine that. So loving-kindness is not just a philosophy or an idea, it's actually taught as a practice. And it begins first with forgiveness, because we can't love if we can't forgive. Forgive means to let go of the hatred that we carry. doesn't mean we condone what happened. We may say, no, never again will I let this happen. Put my own body in the way of letting such suffering continue. And it's not a papering over, it can be a deep process of grief and loss and sorrow and rage. But in the end, it's simply not putting another being out of our heart. And really, it's for ourselves. It's like the two prisoners of war that I talk about. One who said to the other, years later, they got out of the prison. Have you forgiven your captors yet? And the second one said, no, never. And the first one said, well, then they still have you in prison, don't they? In the end, the forgiveness and loving-kindness starts here. We can search the whole universe, says the Buddha, and not find a single being more worthy of loving-kindness than the one sitting right here ourselves. And in a way, to forgive is to ease the suffering of our own heart, the pains that we carry. Whatever we cannot forgive, says Ruth Carter Stapleton, we are doomed one day to relive. The person who refuses to forgive the gossip eventually becomes a gossip, and the one who cannot forgive a betrayal becomes a betrayer. The reason for this is that the inability to forgive a frailty in another indicates we have the same lack of mercy for ourselves. And so there are these practices and you do them once, twice a day, for six months or a year. You know, a hundred, two hundred, five hundred times. 
And sometimes you don't feel it, and sometimes I'm not going to forgive that person. Sometimes it brings up its opposite, you're angry. And that's all part of it. You forgive the anger. You do it over and over. And then gradually, the quality or the intention of the heart grows and it deepens. And a situation comes and forgiveness comes naturally. Loving kindness comes naturally. We start with forgiveness. And then there's a systematic training in loving kindness, beginning with oneself if you can, or a benefactor if you can't feel love for yourself. And then gradually expanding to loved ones, picturing them, offering the intention, may you be well, may you be safe, may you be held in loving kindness, may you be happy. Then when you're good at that, you try neutral people. It's a great practice to do loving kindness for neutral people. I remember the first time I did it years ago on retreat. I was on this retreat, and I'd done loved ones and benefactors, and my heart felt very open. And then I said, okay, a neutral person. And there was this gardener who worked at this retreat center that we were renting, this old guy, and I didn't know him at all. And I just began sitting in my meditation, may he be well, may he be safe, and picturing him, like the Buddha said, as if he were, as he is, someone's beloved child, and feeling that as if his mother were to look at him, or his father. May he be happy. And I repeated it over and over in my meditation over the course of three or four or five days. Um, He was my neutral person. And it's first amazing to see how many neutral people there are. There's this huge category of people that go by that we don't give a thought or a feeling to. And then after a few days, I was out doing my walking meditation, and he walked by, And I swooned. I was so happy to see him. I said, oh, my neutral person. Oh, I love you, you know. And it's because I had practiced that. And there he was, and then it all came. This friend of mine who does hospice work said she feels such deep love for the people that she works with who are dying. And she said, at first I thought it's because it's such an extraordinary space to share of honesty when someone is there um, nearing their death, which is true. She said, but then I realized that there was something else that made it happen for me. And that was that as I go through the day, the, usually I'm working with you know a couple of people at a time, I make sure periodically through the day to do a loving-kindness meditation for them when I'm not with them. May they be well, may they be held in compassion as they go through this process of dying. May they be, you know, um, filled with loving kindness. May they be peaceful. She said, and what I realized is as soon as I picture them now, because I've done this practice of loving kindness, that's what comes into my heart. So, it's not a philosophy. It's a practice. And underneath that, it's a reality, because we are all connected. You breathe with the trees of the Amazon, and the water that's in your body made up somebody else's body before yours, you know, it circulates. And every breath we take in, I was reading this statistic, how um, 
likely it is that the next breath that you draw will have a molecule from Julius Caesar's dying breath. 99 times out of 100, it will have a molecule from Julius Caesar's dying breath. That's how many molecules there are in a breath. Phenomenal number of them. And then they get dispersed. But it's the same. We're just breathing it, us and Julius Caesar, you know, and then whoever follows us. There isn't any hurry. Love is patient, as it says, you know, in the teachings of Jesus, and kind. It's not hurried. It doesn't seek its advantage over another. It really seeks the well-being of that, as if it were us, our children, our, you know, our beloved. Anyway, enough words. Let's do a little forgiveness in metta before we end the evening. Move, find yourself a way to sit that's comfortable and at ease. It's hard to do loving-kindness as a practice if your knees are killing you, you know. And think about these pigeons that fly or these birds that fly hundreds or thousands of miles just to get back home or these dogs and cats that will walk, you know. I have to get back home to my person, right, to my place. I mean, if they can do it, come on, guys. I think we can, too. Let your eyes close gently. Let's come back to the breathing gently at the heart. Let the heart be that place of tenderness that it is most deeply. Then we'll start with the simple recitation of forgiveness. And remember that it's really a practice of releasing the sorrows that we carry in our heart. And yet when we learn to forgive, it becomes our gift to the world around us. Breathing gently, three directions. First, There are many ways in which I have hurt or harmed others over this lifetime, betrayed or abandoned them. I remember these now. Let yourself remember and feel the images and the sorrow you carry from knowingly or unknowingly causing harm to others. There are many ways, in so many ways, knowingly and unknowingly, that I have hurt or betrayed, harmed or abandoned others. I remember these now. The times I've done this out of fear or confusion, out of my pain, anguish, and ignorance. And in this moment, I ask their forgiveness. May I be forgiven.
may I be forgiven. The second direction, just as we have all hurt and harmed others, knowingly and unknowingly, in the same way we have hurt and harmed ourselves. In the many ways in which I have hurt or harmed, betrayed or abandoned myself, I remember these now too. and feel the sorrows I carry from them. And in the many ways I have hurt or harmed myself, abandoned, betrayed myself, out of my fear and pain, out of confusion, ignorance. In this moment, I offer myself forgiveness. I forgive myself for all this. Hold myself with mercy. Because if we can't love ourselves, who else could? In the third direction, There are many ways in which others have hurt or harmed me, abandoned, betrayed me. It has happened to all of us. I remember these now. And feel the sorrows you still carry from all of this. And in the many ways that others have hurt or harmed me, knowingly, unknowingly, out of their fear, out of their pain, out of their confusion and ignorance, to the extent that I am ready, I offer them forgiveness. I forgive you too. I will not put even you out of my heart. To the extent I'm ready, I turn my heart 
in the direction of letting go, healing. Moving in loving kindness from self to loved ones, to neutral ones, to difficult persons, to even our enemies. Now, having cleansed the heart or prepared the ground of forgiveness, feeling the breath again as if you could breathe in and out of the heart or the chest. Simple phrases of loving kindness. Some traditional phrases that you can use or change in any way so that they speak your own heart's intention. First for ourselves. May I be filled with loving kindness. May I be safe from inner and outer danger. May I be well in body, heart, and mind. May I be at peace and happy, truly happy. Deep well-wishing, safe, well, peaceful. Happy. Become aware, too, of the measure of sorrows that you carry, that you've been given in this life. And hold them with great compassion, a tenderness of heart. May I carry these sorrows with great compassion. May I be filled with loving kindness. safe from all danger, may I be well, and peaceful. Let the feelings of loving kindness now spread 
from your heart, picturing one or two people you love a lot. May they be filled with loving kindness. May they be safe from inner and outer dangers. May they be well, body, heart, and mind. May they be peaceful and happy. May they be happy. And then letting the quality of loving kindness go further to fill this room, all of us here together. May we all be held in great loving kindness, tenderness. May we be safe, everyone. May we be well. May we find peace. And breathing, let the field of loving kindness then open. We could stay with other loved ones and friends and benefactors. Let it open wider to the whole of the earth. To all those involved in this election on all sides. To the Palestinians and the Israelis and the Iraqis and Iranians. And the peoples of Asia and the peoples of Africa and of Europe and North and South America and all human beings. Those who are suffering and those causing suffering. Those who are happy and those causing happiness. Far and near, may you all be well. Everyone. May you be safe. May you be at peace. May you be happy. Let the practice of loving kindness spread to the non-human beings, the fishes, the birds, the creatures of the earth and the forest, all that breathes and lives, as if you could hold the earth in your arms as a child and wish the heart's intention, may you all be well. (laughs) May you all
be safe. May you all be free. It's important to remember that these are simply practices and that you can do them a number of times. Sometimes you feel it, sometimes you don't. Sometimes it brings up its opposite. You realize how much pain or fear or resentment or outrage one still has in the heart. And we use them, those who practice, to simply seed the heart's intention over and over. And yet, if one does so, says the Buddha, as the heart grows in loving-kindness, your dreams become sweet. You fall asleep more easily and you waken contented. Your health is better and angels and devas will love and protect you. Men and women will love you as well, says the Buddha. Weapons won't harm you. If you lose things, they'll be returned to you if you have a loving heart and you really cultivate it. You'll have a beautiful rebirth and people will welcome you everywhere. Your thoughts become pleasant and animals sense it and love you. And elephants will bow to you as you go by, it says. Try it at the zoo, see what you think. Your voice becomes sweeter. Your babies are happy in the womb as they grow up. And if you fall off a cliff, a tree will always be there to catch you. (laughs) The world becomes peaceful around you, and you see Buddhists everywhere. We come together on Monday night, whether you come for the first time or as old friends, and it's really just a reminder on this earth of what's possible for us as human beings. Just a reminder of something that we already know inside. So let's do a very simple chant. Ah, add harmony, ah, ah, keep it going, Ah, 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 ah. Gee, if human beings can sound like that. There really is hope for us, isn't there? (laughs) Thank you all. Have an interesting week. (laughs) And if you like, work with the practice of loving kindness and try it in the supermarket, in lines, on 101 in traffic, in your dentist's office, you know.
at school with your children. They'll all be happier for it. Take care. Good night. <laughs>